You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fong. So the same Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. This is episode number 167. Uh, today we'll be talking about uh, David Foster Wallace's 2005 commencement speech at Kenyon College called This is Water. Uh, my name is Danny Anderson, and I am sitting in today for Michael Farmer, who is still on hiatus. Uh, I am an assistant professor of English at Mount Aloysius College in Cresson, Pennsylvania, and I am joined today by Nathan Gilmore, who is assistant pro- or associate, excuse me, professor of uh, English at Emanuel College in Franklin Spring- Springs, Georgia. Uh, how you doing today, there, Nathan? Oh, doing pretty well. Doing pretty well. Good to hear it. Uh, and I'm, we are joined by David Grubbs, who is assistant professor of English at uh, Houston Baptist University in, I assume, Houston, Texas. Uh, David, how are you today? <laughs> you assume rightly. It's <laughs> not just a I, clever well. title. <laughs> okay. Well, excellent. Um, well, guys, let's just jump right into this today then. Um, this speech was delivered at, at the, for the graduation in 2005 at Kenyon College. What speech is it, Danny? It's called This is Water. Uh, <laughs> and it is a, uh, an interesting uh, commencement speech that gets anthologized quite a bit sometimes in college readings. Um, and I think it's an interesting thing for us to uh, consider but it's probably not useful to talk about this speech without talking about its place in the context of the commencement speech genre. So, uh, David, uh, can you tell us a little bit about that form and what it's traditionally meant or been? And when you're done, we'll switch over to Nathan. Well, I, I, I probed around this a little bit, but then I thought, you know what? I've been to so many commencements. Um, <laughs> I, I will generate generic conventions from experience. Um, <laughs> as practically every commencement that I've ever been at, the commencement speech uh, includes some little tidbit of etymology, namely that commencement doesn't mean ending, it means beginning, um, which that's uh, that, that seems to be the notion that many commencement speakers uh take and and that's that's what this is about the commencement speech is is a speech designed to steer the uh, steer the audience of graduates from uh, imagining their lives as students in the institution to imagining their futures it's a kind of um, inspiration slash commissioning which um, point points them forward so it has various uh, uh, various elements that that accord with that uh, inspiration. Um, inspirational anecdotes are frequently included. Um, what's most important, typically, is the person who's called upon to do it. Um, 
uh, getting big names for commencement speeches is, is becoming more and more something that's done. Um, famous people. Uh, this, this is an instance, uh, the one that we're looking at is an instance of, a, of what I would regard as a celebrity commencement speech, though David Foster Wallace also had uh, a foot in the academic realm as well. Uh, he doesn't speak as as one from from outside of that experience, like Kermit the Frog. Uh, Kermit the Frog did back in the nineties. Um, <laughs> do you remember that? Anyone remember where the Kermit the Frog was the commencement speaker? I don't. Actually. No, it's I Kermit, don't. <laughs> okay, it, it, I remember it making the news to the point where I actually cut the cut the uh, story out and put it on my uh, on a bulletin board in my in my room. Um, I, I wish I knew where that was, but yeah, apparently Kermit the Frog was a commencement speaker. So, <laughs> it's better celebrities, than most. <laughs> uh, celebrities, but typically the people who are tapped are those who have demonstrated that they have experience in the world, they've been successful, they have the wisdom that comes with experience, and so they can come back and speak to these um, sort of novices who have cut their teeth in in the schoolroom and are now going to go out into the real world, as is often said. Um, so commencement speeches uh, are, are in that vein. Go out, um, exercise your learning in these ways, encouragement and advice on being successful and making the adjustment to the real world and, and things of that nature. The, all the commencement speeches I've ever heard were were about that. Um, probably the most interesting one I've heard recently was one a few years ago at uh, Central, Central Christian College in McPherson, Kansas, where the provost uh, at the time did the commencement speech from a text in Ecclesiastes about how all is vanity. Um, hmm. That was kind of awesome it was the most demotivating motivational speech i've ever heard and it actually <laughs> was motivating in the end but um yeah the, those are those are the, the the traits as i've observed them uh, in what ways would you augment that nathan uh, about the only thing i'd say is that by the time david foster wallace is giving this speech uh as you've noted although this is a a new bit of trivia to me uh, people have had Kermit the Frog as their graduation speaker, uh, right. and even those colleges who haven't gone full-on Muppets, uh, the sort of self-aware, partially ironic graduation speech has become uh, a phenomenon that you could reasonably expect. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd say maybe a quarter of the graduation speeches that I've heard uh, make some reference to the fact that they're aware that they're giving a graduation speech and they're not going to do a standard one. Uh, yes. which, ha which, you know, I, I, again, it, it's one of those, you know, uh, power tends to co-opt and absolute power co-ops absolutely. Um, <laughs> but you know, uh, you know, the, uh, the graduation speech has become self-aware to the point that, you know, I, I'm just waiting for the first self-aware graduation speech that's aware that it's a self-aware graduation speech. <laughs> <laughs> this might have been it, though, right? Uh, yeah, I think this is... Oh, yeah, point good. taken. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Uh, yeah, um, at the beginning of the, 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 the speech... He tells this cute little story about two fish, and that's where the water or the water reference comes from. This is water, mm -hmm. um, and then at, right after that that 
story, he says, this is a standard requirement of U.S. commencement speeches, the deployment of didactic little parable-ish story. And then he yeah. goes on to explain the genre. Yeah, Right. And I guess what I'm waiting for is, this is the point in the speech where I'm supposed to tell you that this isn't going to be a standard commencement speech. <laughs> I'm just waiting for the exponential irony to emerge into the universe. <laughs> Oof. Are are we ready? Are we ready for that? I don't know. I don't, the universe is in bad enough shape, I think. Uh, actually, so, um, well, but the, the one the thing that you're talking about here, though, is interesting. I remember what was it? Uh, almost two years ago now, um, I, when I was sitting in for Grubs, and we were talking about Michael Farmer's metamodernism thing, right? Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and, and I believe Wallace. I, I could have. I, possibly even brought this speech up during that episode Mm -hmm. um, as an example of what he was talking about, where there is an awareness of the irony of a situation, and yet simultaneously this move towards trying to be sincere (laughs) um, out of that ironic position. And I kind of see Wallace doing that here in this um in this speech in in certain moments so uh we're being kind of dismissive of that ironic turn and i think wallace was well aware of that probably while he was giving Mm -hmm. this speech um because he was very kind of lamental lamentful about postmodernism in many ways and Mm -hmm. um and and so i I wonder if this might be the (laughs) once he did this speech it was sort of the last commencement speech someone could give um in some ways <laughs> the last commencement speech of Farmer. <laughs> um, well, and and I would also add to what you guys were saying about the uh, the, the the prestige booking of these these celebrity speakers, um, and that has now become a very uh, contentious thing in this day. I mean, uh, the people who worry about trigger warnings and such uh, mm-hmm. always point to. Condoleezza Rice or somebody being uh, disinvited from a commencement speech because of um, reactionary uh, attitudes on campus. And um, I think that demonstrates the fact that whether these things mean anything or not, people want them to. Um, Mm -hmm. And I don't know what you guys think about that. Well, it's one of those interesting things where, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I can't remember... Actually, he would have given this speech after this this happened, but I mean, I remember being a graduate student at University of Georgia, and Clarence Thomas, of all people, was invited to give the law school commencement address, mm. and people were protesting it, and I thought, okay, this law school, of all the law schools in the land, has one of the nine Supreme Court justices as an alum, whether you like the dude or not, and I don't especially like him, I mean, that's a logical invitation for a commencement speech. And the fact no one's ever heard his voice. And so, (laughs) (laughs) that alone is... You know, how would you know? You know, how would you know he was actually a commencement speaker? Just for for the sake of of our... Oh, Uh, shoot. No, I mean, you know, that that, that makes sense. I mean, like, like him or not, that's a big deal. Yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. But anyway, that, that that's a sidetrack. I'm sorry. I, the, like, to this day, you know, whatever it is, 10 years later, that still just strikes me as absurd. Yeah. Well, yeah. and it, But it perfectly illustrates the, the stakes that we attach to this genre. 
And, yeah. and Wallace mm-hmm. is a famously kind of pensive uh, figure and, and his kind of hyper awareness of the meaning of the event um, is, I think, an important part of this speech. And, and mm-hmm. I think that um, we all feel that to some degree. Um, well, uh, Nathan, in addition to its kind of participation in the, the genre, uh, the speech that Wallace gave is also a powerful meditation on the liberal arts. Um, and can you talk a little bit about the vision of education that he uh, imagines in this talk? And then we'll move over to Davis. Yeah, I, I, this recursive motion that we've been talking about and that I made the, the, the bad joke about earlier uh, is really at the heart of his vision of the liberal arts in This is Water. Uh, so, you know, at first he says, you know, okay, this is what probably awaits most of you. You know, this is a uh, liberal arts college, so you all will go off and get liberal arts type jobs in, you know, management and, you know, being in positions of moderate but not, you know, uh, uh, world-spanning authority, that's for the Harvard grads. Uh, but, you know, he says that, you know, the reality is you're going to find yourself, and, you know, this is the image he returns to a couple times, uh, sitting in traffic and irritated at the people around you. So his vision of the liberal arts, I feel like he builds it most clearly in that scenario. So he says, you know, a normal person is going to sit there in that traffic and just think, okay... I'm going home from work, I'm probably going to watch a little bit of TV and, you know, come back to work the next day, he says. But, you know, a liberal arts graduate is probably going to sit there and look around and say, hey, look, that person has a George W. Bush sticker and that person's driving a gigantic SUV and they're going to be angry about the great injustices of all of it. But what he pushes (laughs) towards is that, you know, if you really take seriously your liberal arts education... It means you've read a few stories, you've taken in a few plays, you know that that person in the SUV might have a reason for driving it. That person who has the partisan affiliation that she has might have that partisan affiliation because of a deep pain that has shaped her life, you know, uh, that that awareness and moreover that willingness to expand awareness at any step is really what's kind of at the core of his vision of the liberal arts. I mean, David, what would you add to that? I, I, th- I think that's the, you know, that what, what you've captured there is, is, is the main move that, um, you know, the, the, the two kinds of frames is the liberal arts. And we think, why are, why are they liberal? Um, the, the liberal arts as those arts that are suitable for free pe- for free peoples and are, mm-hmm. are suitable for freeing peoples. And in this sense, that education is freeing you, um, freeing you from being at the mercy of first impressions and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, but also because he is coming at it from the humanities, he's, you know, I think also delivering this kind of tacit argument or, uh, or you know, defense of that part of the liberal arts as well, because the, the, this vision helps you keep those you see as human. Mm-hmm. Uh, human beings with stories, and they don't just become obstacles, which, um, yeah, which, which is incredibly helpful. And, and practical, and in some ways I, I find this much more refreshing as a defense of humanities and defense of liberal arts than 
well, but it will help you with critical thinking, and that will be good in Yeah, whatever that phrase means. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, right, not that critical right. thinking is a terrible thing, but, I mean, so often that's that's what the apolog- uh, you know, apologies for the humanities or apologies for liberal arts ends up falling back on. Mm-hmm. You know, how mm-hmm. it's going to be, you know, utilized in your job. You're going to write a lot. Well... I, I like I like Foster Wallace's defense better. Mm-hmm. And you know, just so that uh, Danny can put the chip on his bingo card, his account of things I mean reminds me a great deal of Alistair McIntyre's discussion in <laughs> After Virtue. I'm being serious, <laughs> although I am giving you your bingo chip. Uh, I think at this point it's just a free space, but <laughs> um, but when he talks about how the complex action is more primary philosophically than the simple action uh, so that, you know, the intelligibility of what we do is always embedded in a narrative. And what Wallace is challenging these graduates to do is to consider other people's stories as complex as one's own. Mm. I agree. I, and it's funny you did that, Nathan, because I was going to use the bingo a chip uh, metaphor for myself, actually, because um, <laughs> so those of you who are playing Anderson Bingo will also have a chip played here, um, because I'm going to go with uh, Christian uh, Humanist Bingo. <laughs> yes, you should print those and sell them. <laughs> oh, I, I I think they might appear on the website sometime. <laughs> um, but uh, like for me, like this is the kind of disinterestedness that I see in in Matthew Arnold. This is the um, the the kind of um, uh, some, what some people criticize as aloofness and, and unusability of that vision of, uh, of liberal arts actually maintains its ability to be liberated, to be, to be free from the, con- the immediate concerns of, of the world that we live in and the material world that we operate in. And so this ability to kind of um, desituate oneself and consider oneself part of the context instead of the center of everything um, is, to me, um, a very classical uh, idea of what a liberal arts education is, uh, or what it what it should be doing. And and as it said, um, as David David said, um, sorry, I just called you it, um, but as David just said, <laughs> <laughs> humanizing, exactly. But as David just said, um, the typical defense of the liberal arts basically tethers it to material gain, like to uh, the working world and skills that we can quantify and measure and, and that sort of thing. And that really works against the spirit of it all. And I, and I think Wallace's hedging and his like real like rhetorical unwillingness to settle into any kind of set position. Um, and really he kind of lays bare the mechanics of all these set positions, uh, during the speech is indicative of this kind of, um, uh, more kind of very old fashioned really view of what a liberal arts education is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so uh, do you have a bingo chip, uh, David, or is it just me and Nathan today? So I have have... bingo chips <laughs> <laughs> right. I, I do have them, and I will play them in shortly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, there, there's a uh, yeah, there's quite a bit here. Um, well, David, <laughs> I feel like uh, Wallace himself, as a, a person, is worth talking about here. His reputation as a writer is somewhat complex. 
And I wonder if it has any ramifications for how we receive this now famous speech. Can you tell us a little bit about his work uh, and why you think it's meaningful? And then we'll shoot over to Nathan. David Foster Wallace is an author that I have never read. Um, I've never read anything by him. I know him almost exclusively by reputation um, from the enthusiasm that various people I've been in graduate school at different times had for his work. Um, you, you could kind of tell um, that there was a particular kind of person that was really, really stoked by our critical theory classes, and they loved Pynchon, and they loved Infinite Jest. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, he's he uh, David Foster Wallace was a novelist, I guess, mainly, but also an essayist, also a short story writer. Um, I was reading a, an article uh, in Slate about the uh, a book he co-authored back in the 90s, if I remember correctly, about rap. Um, the, the author said that David Foster Wallace seems to want to make it difficult for booksellers to decide where to put his books. Because <laughs> um, he covered so he covered so much ground. Cultural criticism, philosophy, all the rest of it. Uh, as an undergrad, he was a he was a double major in philosophy and English, so it that that yay, kind of helps. oh <laughs> right, <laughs> uh, also a student athlete, so there you go, um, but a tennis player, so you know, for 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 what that's worth, um, <laughs> probably the best known of his novels is Infinite Jest, though that's not his only. Uh, he had an unfinished one, The Pale King, uh, that came out posthumously. Um, he's a postmodern novelist. Uh, his he's he's interested in narrative self-awareness. Um, uh, a lot of the things that we've already been saying about this speech play into things that are kind of uh, n- um, frequently observed about his literary technique. Um, one thing though that's also interest interesting is. Um, I, I'm using the, the past tense because uh, David Foster Wallace uh, committed suicide in 2008. Um, he had apparently wrestled with uh, anxiety um, all of his life um, uh, as a result of uh, chemical imbalance. No, nothing, nothing particularly terrible going on in his life, um, but uh, it was uh, it was something that he was medicated for, um, and. Uh, in 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 2008, uh, in in a dark time, um, he uh, yeah he took his life, which makes particular parts of this novel, um, I guess, poignant for me, mm-hmm. or of this uh, of mm-hmm. this speech, anyway. So um, yeah, knowing knowing those things because I, I I did the work on this particular question before I read the speech. Because I didn't know a whole lot about him outside of he was that postmodern novel guy that wrote that enormous thing that I didn't read. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, so I, I came to this speech after doing some research on his background. Um, you, uh, the uh, University of Texas at Austin has uh, a receptacle of his papers, and so there's there's some useful stuff for um for poking around if you're if you're interested in that um i found that as a, a kind of a helpful source for being being one who doesn't know a whole a heck of a lot about him 
Um, now I pass the baton. What what else needs to be mentioned, or have I said things that need correction? And Danny, I'm just going to go ahead and lateral because I, you know, <laughs> that David has more than exhausted my knowledge of his biography. <laughs> well, no, um, I think that that covered most of it. Um, there is a, a recent movie; it may still be out uh, as we record oh. this, called uh, "End of the Tour," um, about a reporter basically on a book signing tour with David Foster Wallace, played by Jason Siegel. Uh, hmm. uh, uh, during the Infinite Jest kind of promotion period, I think. Um, I haven't seen it, obviously. But um, so he is a figure, I think, I mean, you see this very often in um, people like Kurt Cobain after, you know, the suicide somehow romanticizes him to a degree culturally. And, um, and so it's not surprising that seven years later there's a movie um, about him. Um, but uh, it, it also strikes me as something that he would sort of detest, <laughs> the, the idea that uh, it seems like too kind of formulaic and simple to uh, to be taken seriously. <laughs> uh, if you like think about his, um, uh, you know, the way his work is oriented. Um, and so, yeah, there is a, a, a pretty profound cultural impact from someone who didn't live very long um, and didn't do that much work. I mean, he did quite a lot of work actually for his, um, his age, but, mm-hmm. um, but As someone who's best known as a novelist, he basically published two in his lifetime. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Um, and really yeah. his, his short, um, nonfiction is actually remarkable. Uh, there's a, a book of, of essays called brief interviews with hideous men that I, I first became aware <laughs> of at a, um, during a, saw a paper that someone was presenting on him, I don't know, maybe three years ago at a, a local Christianity and literature conference in uh, the Southeast region. And, uh, and that's how I sort of kind of began thinking about him a little bit more. Um, but there is a, a way that his work is interesting to Christians <laughs> in a way that mm. many or most, uh, no other postmodern writer can match. Um, and, and I think that uh, there's something about his kind of quest for his like unfulfilled quest for authenticity and truth that it, mm-hmm. it speaks really highly to, uh, to a Christian reader. And so that's, I mean, it's not, uh, surprising then that I would, you'd see his work coming up in Christian journals. Um, and, and in fact, uh, James K. A. Smith wrote an essay about his work, uh, fairly recently. It wasn't that long ago, um, in which he kind of talks about the kind of Christian version of postmodernism that he can read into, um, uh, Wallace's work. And so, um, yeah, I think that his work is, um, complex enough that it actually gets at, um, that's how it gets at the issues of liberal arts, uh, and what mm-hmm. it means that the, the way that the way that's the way that the speech becomes so successful, I think. So, um, no, I think that the, that you've done a, a, a nice job there, David, <laughs> as a, as a medievalist, <laughs> dealing with the postmodern. <laughs> David Foster was very self-consciously stepping outside of his comfort zone. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> so much so that you might call yourself it even. So yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, Nathan, let's get back to the the speech itself, and I want to talk a little bit about the context of the speech. I, I feel like that's uh, a really interesting aspect of it. It is a speech given at Kenyon College at a specific time um and and i think that that context is vital and even works it's it's so much so that it even works its way into the delivery of the talk if you listen to a recorded version of this uh can you talk a little bit about what the context means in understanding this speech 
Well, first of all, I'm terrified of this question because, uh, as listeners might know, our uh, press liaison, Kristen Filippic, is a Kenyan <laughs> alum, so no matter what I say at this point, it's going to be wrong. <laughs> so ha- having made that, you know, little postmodern disclaimer, um, you know, I, I, I think that... Well, you have to make the postmodern disclaimer. You have to say that you have to make the postmodern. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yes, yes, yes. Um, <laughs> At this point, normally you'd expect a, a postmodern disclaimer. Uh, well, yes. <laughs> and you'll get one. Yes, yes. <laughs> but one of the things about this speech is that, you know, it presumes certain things about its audience. Uh, you know, it, it presumes that they are going into professional jobs it assumes that the people they're going to despise out on the roads are the you know bible belt types uh it assumes that these folks you know think of themselves as as liberals as well as liberal arts graduates and we've talked all about all that already one thing that i would add to that is that because kenyan college uh you know is a place with uh certainly a history in christianity but whose whose current identity isn't necessarily affiliated with any particular confessing tradition. Um, his his section of the speech towards the end is really poignant because he says that, you know, functionally, there are no atheists. And I think that that's something that, that's definitely speaking to the sort of liberal arts type, not necessarily because they would self-identify as Dawkins people or Nietzsche people, uh, but because part of that sort of liberal arts identity is the idea that we are always calling things into question rather than devoting ourselves to things. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that, you know, when he says that, you know, ultimately you're never an atheist, you always worship either power or accomplishment or something like that. Or if you, you know, take your own liberal arts background seriously, you devote yourself to Jesus or Yahweh, or Allah, or, you know, one of the more traditional religions, and he says, ultimately, although it might sound counterintuitive at a place like this, actually, he doesn't say that, but I could sort of infer it, uh, ultimately, your life is going to be a better one, because those are gods that actually have their own agenda, rather than pretending to follow yours. Mm. So, David, what else would you add to that? I, I do I do like the the points at which um, that it, it it's 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 a lovely moment in for me it's a lovely moment of course it's a lovely moment for me um, when he's describing them being angry at this person who's in an SUV with religious bumper stickers and then um, Talks about the, uh, the these 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 bu- these patriotic and religious bumper stickers always seem to be on the biggest, most disgusting, self most disgustingly selfish vehicles driven by the ugliest. Mm-hmm. Responding here to loud applause, this is an example of how not to think. Though <laughs> most disgustingly <laughs> selfish vehicles driven by the ugliest, most inconsiderate, aggressive and aggressive drivers. Um. It's it's at that point that the audience is like, yay, haha, this is us, this mm-hmm. is what we think, and he's like, no, 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 don't don't do that, don't be like that, <laughs> yeah, um, which I wondered if it was a trap, which I wouldn't be the least bit surprised if it was a trap, 
Um, you know, if Milton can surprise us with sin, I, I suppose David Foster Wallace can too. <laughs> Sounds um, like you're fishing. Oh, low clap. Also, that's two. That's two more bingo squares, right? I really think so. (laughs) Yeah, let Um, listeners look for those bingo cards soon. (laughs) Um. Anyway, that that, I I guess that's all I want to say say about about that that in the context at the moment is that he's 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 wonderfully aware of where he's at. And he, I believe he's laying traps, and that's that I think is delightful. Mm-hmm. And not in an entirely unappreciative way. I mean, he obviously values the kind of critical thinking that you get out of a liberal arts education to see injustice in the world, to see waste and 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 hypocritical you know behavior and that sort of thing. No but doubt. he's also he's also like smart enough to understand that you can't like settle that into fixed positions you know what i'm saying and mm-hmm. and that just become then it just becomes a weapon and it and it kind of defeats its own purpose as a mm-hmm. liberated way of thinking it's now fixed it's not liberated anymore and, and so that moment i i was going to bring up if you didn't david is to listen to is actually really remarkable the audience really gets into it there's this slow build of applause and cheering and then he just kind of shames them all yeah <laughs> Uh, they're not understanding that he's talking down to them, not up, not up with them. You know what I'm saying? And yeah, and, and that's a really uh, that's a an amazing moment in a speech where you, in a speech particularly within the genre, which is supposed to be celebratory and empowering and all this sort of thing, they actually mm-hmm. like literally shame your audience <laughs> for their bad <laughs> attitude. <laughs> it's I think pretty remarkable, right? Uh, right, uh, right. And I'm going to actually steal one of Danny's bingo chips here, now that we're just working the heck out of that. Um, Why but, I mean, it reminds me of Lionel Trilling's essay, The Purpose of This Little Magazine. Or that, That's probably not the exact title, but, I mean, that's precisely what he says about liberalism in 1946, is that it's become so established uh, that people don't appreciate intellectual tension anymore. And it seems like that's the sort of thing that Wallace is kind of grabbing for here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it perfectly describes the kind of uh, like internet culture of argument that we're in right now. We have very kind of clear mm-hmm. teams uh, um, on particularly is- on certain issues, and and we we are not allowed to kind of deviate from the from the assumed, assumed positions, right? And even if those positions are created, and this is, Nathan's right, right out of Trilling, um, but if you read the preface to the liberal imagination, that's exactly what he's talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, um, even if we come to these conclusions about the world through the liberal, uh, like, imagination, through the through these good sentiments, as, as Trilling puts them, uh, puts it, the uh, to kind of just settle on that as a rule then defeats the very purpose, right? There has to be this kind of, um, metacognition going on, which is what this speech is like formally and um, substantively uh, founded on, is this kind mm-hmm. of uh, me- metacognition about it. And so, no, I think that mm-hmm. uh, um, I was ashamed to go to Trilling. I'm glad that. <laughs> 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 <It's> a... <laughs> well, I mean, it, it, it's on my mind, Danny, because you, you'll be pleased with this. I had the uh, the entire staff of Montage Literary Magazine read that essay earlier this semester. Uh. I feel like I did something good in the world. That's, that's, that's nice. <laughs> can, can you can you die happy now? Is that, is that what that was? I, well, I doubt that. But that's. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> um, yeah. No, no, that that's I, I think that you guys are exactly right. In that context, if you've ever been to Kenya, I mean, this is a, an elite school, right? Um, mm-hmm. the Eastern elite sort of send their children here and it's in right. the middle of nowhere. And it's got this this vast tradition. Trail or Ohio, if you prefer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, but uh, Trilling himself was was there for a while, and the new criticism like found much of its uh, uh, like organization there. The Kenyan Review is still a really important thing, and so to bring like the the kind of spiritual essence of the liberal arts and point it back at an institution that like mm-hmm. exemplifies it uh, is a really kind of powerful moment, I think, um, and and it really kind of makes its uh, uh, snuff right there in that place that. Um, that, uh, David had identified. Mm-hmm. Um, well, David, uh, back to you. Um, <laughs> I uh, huh. I have taught this speech several times uh, in it, it, college, and and I find it's both asserts and kind of deeply challenges the assumptions of a Christian college, as it does with it, at a secular liberal arts college. Uh, what aspects of the speech are you? conventional say in terms of a christian vision of higher ed and what aspects are subversive and then we'll shoot, go shoot to nation nathan the uh first point um and this is familiar to me because it's the starting um my starting move in the comp class uh, to comp one classes that i'm teaching this semester um at HBU, our comp one is called Writing for Wisdom One, and it's um, basically they're reading great books, uh, uh, prose works. So we're looking at Nicomachean Ethics and a bit of Epicurus and a bit of Boethius and a bit of Marcus Aurelius and so forth. Anyway, uh, we start. I, I started the semester in my classes looking at C.S. Lewis's On the Reading of Old Books. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there is a way in which this particular speech is doing something that C.S. Lewis, for those who are playing bingo at home, I just played C.S. Lewis. Um, (laughs) uh, There's a way in which C.S. Lewis is doing something similar in that essay to what Foster Wallace is doing in this, which uh, is calling attention to the fact that we aren't aware of our assumptions, when we live in a particular time and place, we are buried in, we are steeped in um, the assumptions that are just sort of part of that environment. We don't see the water. That's the whole point of the, his, his little parable-ish story that's at the beginning. Um, but what he wants to direct his listeners to, David Foster Wallace, uh, is an awareness of the fact that they have assumptions. Um, is awareness that their assumptions could be different and that the world would look differently if they had them. Um, and that and that's C.S. Lewis's whole point in On the Reading of Old Books. Uh, he, you know, Lewis recommends that you know, the, the only way you can get us outside of the assumptions of your era is to read people from a different era. And since we don't have the books of the future, we have to read the ones from the past. And, and this is, you know, this to me is just part and parcel of this defending a liberal arts humanities um, education, is is that that argument. So when when he when he started taking that tack, I was like, ah, I know this, I know this argument. Hmm. Another one that felt useful uh, or that felt familiar is uh, a bit further on when he starts to talk about how we are. Um, what, what's his language? Um, 
my that my my natural hardwired default setting is to be deeply and literally self-centered and to see and interpret everything through this lens of self. Mm-hmm. At which point I heard, you know, Martin Luther saying in curvatus in se, um, curved in on ourself. And this is, you know, this is Luther in his, uh, uh, his lectures on Romans talking about chapter five. Um, due to original sin, our nature is so curved in upon itself at its deepest levels that it not only bends the best gifts of God towards itself in order to enjoy them, Nay, it rather uses God in order to obtain them. And it, but it doesn't even know that in this twisted and wicked and crooked way. It seeks everything, including God, only for itself. Um, his, his, his description of our hardwired default mode of solipsism reminded me very much of uh, what, what I think is a... a, a a useful and fruitful um, awareness of human sin that is part of Christian higher education. Um, what we do is, I, I see it as substantively different because we don't think that just giving this liberal education will make perfect persons. Um, we think there's something wrong. We think there's something that has to be bent back. And... Um, I think on that point, Foster Wallace seems to be saying something, um, if not the same, so closely analogous that I think we're, I think we're used, we're having a good conversation together at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly there are other things, but I want to leave material for Nathan. Um, <laughs> the one thing that seemed to me though uh, uh, would would be different from the assumptions in the Christian college. Um, his the, this kind of meta narrative, mer- sort of meta narrative self awareness postmodern thing of his um, is being almost presented as the end of wisdom. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like postmodern perspective as Zen. <laughs> you know, this 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 is the thing that will give you you know the mastery. This is this is the end. Um, I think. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I, 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 I don't know that I'm entirely comf- uncom- I don't know that I'm entirely comfortable with uh, with that particular um, notion that 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 would be the end of wisdom um, in itself in some sense. Um, at that point, I think Christian higher ed would want to say, no, I, 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 that's a good transition point, but I think I think you need to find somewhere to stand. Mm-hmm. Thoughts? Yeah, about the only thing I'd add to that is that I, I don't know that it is subversive of a Christian higher ed vision, uh, mm-hmm. but I think I'd agree with David that that it it doesn't situate itself in the sort of for the sake of relationship that I would mm-hmm. want to if I were going to you know talk about a vision of Christian higher ed. So in other words, I, I would say that you know Christian college students should read Arthur Miller and Dostoevsky and, you know, Shusaku Endo, and through that should develop this recursive, constantly self-evaluating kind of consciousness that David Foster Wallace is after here. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I would say that you do that for the sake of praying more honestly. Hmm. 
So, I mean, you know, it, it, it's one of those things where, you know, I mean, if you look at the, you know, the history of uh, confession in the Middle Ages, you know, I mean, they are developing some truly sophisticated psychological categories there, but it's not for the sake of publishing journal articles in, you know, psychology journals, and it's not even for the sake of simply being aware of how jacked up we are, but it's for the sake of confessing how jacked up we are, and there's a difference there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm reminded again of that metamodernism episode that we did. I think I seem to remember Nathan having a real problem with that concept. Um, and forgive me if I'm putting words in your mouth. This is sort of off of my memory. But the idea of performing belief without having belief, uh, which was, seemed to me my takeaway from the metamodernism, uh, the concept of that, uh, is challenging. Uh, am I right? Do, do you remember that, Nathan? Well, as I remember it, and again, my, my memory is just as defective as yours, if not more so, uh, but <laughs> the, the way I remember that episode, my main problem with metamodernism is it was holding up as simply different what I would see as defective. So in ah. other words, if you don't have the integrity to be ironic all the way down, along with the turtles stacked on each other... Um, <laughs> You know, metamodernism says, well, you know, that's just a different way to be. And I would say, well, or it could mean that, you know, you're not taking postmodernism seriously enough. Ah, okay. Well, then I, I, a position might be then that um, this idea of just um, sincerely trying to believe is different than actually believing. And at one point, uh, a, a challenge to sort of Christian orthodoxy certainly is when he talks about um, that moment where the, the well, he says, and the compelling, the only choice you get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it <laughs> JC um, or Allah or Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some inviolable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything you, else you worship will eat you alive. And so mm. I, um, what he's suggesting there is that there is no sort of uh, truth value per se um, in any of those things. It's just sort of the submission to one of these things that you may not even believe in um, is is better than not doing that, right? And so um, I guess this is sort of building off of where I thought um, David was going. And so, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I feel like that's a moment where there's clear kind of uh, diversion from Christian orthodoxy, at least, right? I mean, because it's sort of equating. It's a, there's a relativism there. Um mm-hmm. That is, that is subversive, I think. Um, but I think, as a whole, the the idea of this is sort of do unto others as you would have others do unto you, right? You would we want us to think of the other people to think the best of us, right? So we owe that mm-hmm. to them, just by being humans together. Um, and the biggest thing that I think uh, I see a, a a correlation here, and from from my from my own reading of the speech, is uh, in James Smith's. Uh, book desiring the kingdom the idea mm. that he puts forth almost comes out of the speech that there is no such thing as not worshiping you, the, mm-hmm. the task right. of education is choosing the correct thing to worship like shaping the desire right and and that's mm-hmm. really i mean wallace is saying the same thing in just different terminology here mm-hmm yeah. And I have thank Nathan to thank for having read that book, by the way. So, uh, but it, it's uh, it, to me, and and probably explains uh, Smith's own you know attraction to Wallace's work here in the essay that he wrote about him. Mm-hmm. So, um, well, well, 
that uh, echo cool. about the human heart being an idol factory in Calvin probably helped too. <laughs> there so might there's be the Calvin. Like that in there. There's the Calvin token. Yeah. <laughs> This, wow, I, I, whole, I think Wallace has infected us. We are being so self-referential in this episode. It's almost impossible not to be after talking about this. The whole bingo thing is driving me crazy. So, uh, in a good way. Uh, so, But building off of these last couple of questions, um, uh, can we speculate about how this speech might look differently? We talked about the context of Kenyon College, and now we talked about the way it both upholds and contradicts Christian college values. Uh, can mm-hmm. we speculate about how the speech might look differently if it were given at a conservative Christian college rather than a liberal secular one? Uh, Nathan, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I, I, I realize that there's a couple different ways to interpret this question even, so I'm going to take my favorite one and run with it. Uh, yeah. You know, if someone wanted to do for, you know, Emmanuel College graduates or Houston Baptist graduates, what this speech did for Kenyan graduates, how might one invent that speech is kind of how I'm going to take it. Sure. Mm -hmm. So, you know, first of all, you know, the the obvious bit, and I'll get that out of the way, is that the predictable party affiliations of the graduates would flip. Okay. (laughs) Easy enough. Okay. Right. Beyond that, though, I think that the greater danger than atheism for the Christian college graduate is a kind of devotional idolatry. So Mm -hmm. if we were going to shape this speech, I mean, I don't think it would culminate saying that everyone worships something. I think that's something that a Christian college graduate would basically assume. I think it would Mm -hmm. be more poignant and have more of an impact on those folks about to cross the stage if you talked about the tendency that even the most faithful have, and perhaps especially the most faithful have, to craft gods in our own image and then pray to those idols. Uh, you know, I'm reminded of uh, Merrill Westfall's one-liner that he gives at just about every public speech he delivers, that uh, every prayer I've ever, ever, I've ever, ever blah, every prayer I've ever uttered was directed at an idol, and, you know, I, I, when I think about that, I mean, it offends me to think so, but, I mean, in a certain cast, that is true. Now, what he always follows it up with, and this is an important follow-up to it, but our hope is not an idol, but the true God will hear it. Mm. So it, it's one of those things where, you know, I think that uh, if we were going to craft this speech for a Christian liberal arts college graduation... Uh, I think a lot of the insights would be there, a lot of the interpersonal stuff would be there, but that ultimately what you sort of finish with would be a critique not of atheism and relativism, but a critique of idolatry and ideology. What do you think, David? I, I, I like that. I, I'm, I'm, I'm still thinking about it. I just, I just finished a book by... Uh... Uh, by a guy named Chris Tilling writing about um, Christology and Paul. But mm-hmm. one of the things that he talks about is um, the Christology and Paul, thinking about it relationally and devotionally mm-hmm. um, as as the first step. And that if you're immediately going to what are the, uh, 
what are the axia of Pauline Christology? What are the what are the 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 statements? What are the bullet points? Um, you've missed the point that mm-hmm. that the the that knowing Christ precedes the knowing of Christ, if that makes sense. Um, and that that seems to be getting at I, I think what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, another way that I th- that that I think it would be different is the notion of the notion of sympathy even with those who differ from us greatly is a point that um i think it would it would it, it would you know it, it might flip the assumptions about what um what the listeners uh, believed in terms of partisan politics and you know you know what side they suit up for in social in in culture wars and whatnot but um you know, I would again, you know, bring in a little more C.S. Lewis um, from his Weight of Glory sermon, uh, in which he in which he says that every human you've ever met is on a trajectory to be either so glorious that if you saw them now you would be inclined to worship, or s- uh, such a monstrous uh, version of their current vice that you would that you would turn from it in horror. Mm-hmm. And that seems to me to be some of the things that Foster Wallace is saying about how do you, how do you feel sympathy with other people who are behaving, you know, often in unsympathetic ways around you? How, how do you think of these people who are inconvenient, inconveniencing you? Um, I, I think that, you know, that's a, you know, that C.S. Lewis also gives particularly Christian ways of, of framing those same ideas. Mm-hmm. One thing that I think, I, if I were trying to accomplish the goals that Wallace seems to be trying to accomplish for this liberal secular audience um, at a conservative Christian college, I think one of the assumptions I would go at is that this kind of rhetorical statement that we always hear that you know, Harvard was founded as a Christian college, and now look at it, right? And so, like, there's this uh, uh, assumption that secular education is all devilish, and that uh, Christian education, just by the label we put on it, um, is therefore better and good. And, and I think that I think that's one thing he would directly assault um, in, in the way that he assaults sort of the. Uh, uh, the political assumptions of the audience that he's talking to here. Um, I don't know if that's if that makes sense what I'm saying there. Oh yeah yeah yeah. I mean that makes some sense. Well, I'd like to uh, close by each of us reading a favorite passage from the speech and maybe just explaining why it's meaningful. I think there's a lot of beautiful prose here, and so I'd like to give us a chance to do that. David, do you want to start and then uh, send it off to Nathan? Sure. I love I love his traffic jam a lot but I love his grocery store even more so mm-hmm. uh, so we'll, we'll look here um, most days if you're aware enough to give yourself a choice you can choose to look differently at that fat dead eyed over made up lady who just screamed at her kid in the, checkup li- in the checkout line maybe she's not usually like this Maybe she's been up three straight nights holding the hand of a hus- husband who's dying of bone cancer. 
or maybe this very lady is the low-wage clerk at, a motor, at the motor vehicle department who just yesterday helped your spouse resolve a horrific, infuriating red tape problem through some small act of bureaucratic kindness. Of course, none of this is likely, but it's also not impossible. It just depends on what to consider. If you automatically sure you know what reality is and you're operating on your default setting, then you, like me, probably won't consider possibilities that aren't annoying and miserable. But if you actually, if you really learn how to pay attention, then you will know there are other options. It will actually be within your power to experience a crowded, hot, slow, consumer hell type situation as not only meaningful but sacred on fire with the same force that made the stars love, fellowship, the mystical oneness of all things deep down. Which it went kind of Buddhist and Zen, but it did it by way of Dante Dagomet. So, <laughs> um, so that needs, you know, that 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 needed reference. Also, it reminded me of um, some things you said uh, last week about office, uh, or a couple episodes ago about offices, Nathan. About it could be the inferno, but whether or not it's inferno or purgatorio. Um, depends on the disposition of your soul, and I think he's saying that he's think he's saying that 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 interminable queue at the grocery store could be um, could be a purgatorio that ends in a paradiso, which it actually does in that paragraph. Mm-hmm. Um, not just uh, not just an inferno. You don't have to stay in hell if you don't want to. <laughs> mm-hmm. I love that, Nathan. Yeah, I mean the the opening story of the of the speech, and uh, you know, or I guess the the second story in the speech is one that I want to talk about just a little bit because, you know, he gives the standard, uh, you know, two guys who are talking in a bar, and one of them says, you know, I'm a believer, the other one says I'm an atheist, and the guy says, well, why are you an atheist? And he says, you know, well, I was out in a blizzard, and you know, I had no chance of survival, but you know, here I am today still surviving even though there was no chance and the religious guy says, well, seems like that'd be a reason to be a believer and the atheist says, well, no, actually a couple Eskimos came along and hauled me down the mountain. <laughs> and what's nice about this is, you know, again, it's that, you know, postmodern self-awareness. He says, you know, okay, so now here's where I'm supposed to tell you that any event can be, you know, interpreted in multiple kinds of ways and we need to stay open to it but he says what strikes me is that either way you interpret it you're kind of being arrogant about it you know assuming that there is a meaning there of some sort beyond what is immediately obvious to everyone who looks at it and that that little moral turn there uh just kind of hit me in the right direction I, i i like that so Danny, what do you got? Well, I was going to actually read the one that uh, David had read. I had a backup. Oh, good. No, no, that's fine. Good, good. Um, but the reason why, I mean, I feel like uh, what is required then to live this moral life that he's thinking is an active imagination. And I think that that's something that really speaks to me. If, if we're to have a defense of the liberal arts that isn't uh, pragmatic, it, it's one that to... Uh, imagine somebody else for a moment is part of what we're doing when we read books and when we read poetry and all these sorts of other things and there's an ethical work being done there Uh, and and I feel like that that to me is is very kind of meaningful Um, but 
the the kind of like I mean, he, towards the end he makes a very kind of uh, preach is almost sermony um, and it's almost right out of uh, James K. A. Smith here uh, and it's sort of talking about it's an elaboration on the idea there's no such thing as not worshiping and the destructiveness of worshiping things that are internal instead of external he says worship power you will end up feeling weak and afraid and you'll need ever more power for uh, over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, be, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious, they're default settings. And, and then he talks about other things, but that idea that um, nobody then, there's no position that you can hold that doesn't hold a danger of becoming an idol, as Nathan was talking about. And, and to me, this is why this speech is so kind of uh, praising and damning at the same time, no matter who's reading or listening to it, because you're coming to a position that you immediately are obligated to examine and, and to sort of undermine your own kind of stability. And I think that's one of its more useful things, um, uh, aspects of the speech. So, um, well, guys, I very much thank you for allowing me to have this conversation with you. I uh, had a great time. I learned a lot. And um, David, I believe you are going to take the uh, the reins next week. Do you have a, a, a preview for us? Uh, in, indeed I do. Um, paying, uh, I believe, a long-standing debt uh, of multiple topic suggestions from multiple readers and also furthering your uh, Christian Humanist podcast, Bingo. Um, I'd like to take a stab at Chesterton. All right, let's do it. We'll talk Chesterton <laughs> next week. That sounds fun. Well, um, guys, uh, thanks so much. This is uh, Danny Anderson, uh, normally of Sectarian Review, but uh, filling in here. And uh, I want to thank uh, Nathan Gilmore and David Grubbs for joining me today. And until next week, uh, let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger. <laughs>